All right, Revelation chapter 9. As we get started, I, I want to remind you all that what we're looking at and what we're talking about is going to happen. This isn't fantasy. This is real. As I've said many times before, prophecy is not what God just plans to happen. It's not what He hopes will happen. It's what He has seen happen. Because God, being I am, is not bound by time. He has seen it all, from beginning to end. He is the beginning and the end. He is I am. So this is what is coming. It's what will come upon this world. What I continue to find marvelous about the Word of God is even while we are being instructed on what's coming, He's giving us what's practical for right now. So there are things that I believe we'll see tonight and talk about tonight that are practical for us immediately, here and now. But always keep in the back of your mind, because it is a very serious subject, keep in the back of your mind what is coming upon this earth. And Lord, we ask that you would bless our study tonight, that you would open not just our minds to receive the information, but our hearts to receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us through your word and teach us not only what's to come, but the principles by which we can be living right now. And we thank you, Lord. We honor you and bless your name. And we seek tonight the blessing that comes of this book that you promised. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to draw back to the last verse of chapter 8. I think it's a good place to start. John is writing. He says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle. Some of your translations say an angel. Could go either way. I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe! Woe! Woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. The final three trumpet judgments are also called the three woes because, as we talked about, these are unquestionably supernatural. What happens in these three, you you can't even compare it to a nuclear holocaust or the potential of something that man could do, although I don't believe any of the trumpet judgments are are man-made. But you can't even question it because of the activity that takes place, the demonic activity that is unleashed in these last trumpet judgments, in these three woes, verse 1 of chapter 9, then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. This is the first woe. Note right off the bat that the star is a hymn. Not as in a song, but as in a person, as in the masculine. This is a a being. This is not simply a star falling. This is a a picture of a him, of a guy, of of a man, of a person at least. And we know the stars can refer to heavenly beings. We see that in Scripture, that that implication, even as God spoke to Job in Job 38 verse 4 and said, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then in verse 7 of Job 38, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Implication, angels worshiping at the time of creation. 
The morning stars, when they sang together, morning stars there, note this is Boker Kakob. And that's Boker, is the, it means morning. If you ever go to Israel, they will say Boker Tov, and that's good morning. So Boker Kokob is morning stars. Now John immediately preceded this, this whole idea here of a falling star that is a hymn. He perceives this, if you note, with what we talked about on Sunday, back in chapter 8, verse 10. A great star that has a name, a masculine name, Wormwood. Chapter 8, verse 10, the third angel sounded, a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Wormwood appears to me to be code for history's most bitter being. And I am suggesting to you tonight, and it is just one man's opinion, that wormwood is in fact Satan. If you will keep your finger there and turn back to Isaiah chapter 14, I'll explain a little bit of where I'm coming from. Isaiah chapter 14. And be ready to turn tonight. Going to take you to a couple of places again in the Hebrew Scriptures because the book of Revelation continually references Hebrew doctrine, Hebrew teaching, Torah law. It's all over the place in Revelation. Great thing about the book. It teaches us the Hebrew Scriptures as well as the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 14, look at verse 12. Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Star of morning, Son of the dawn. The star of the morning in the Hebrew, it's Hillel ben Shachar. In Latin, which I tell you because you would find it more familiar, it's Lucifer. So that phrase there, star of the morning, son of dawn, the phrase in the King James translation would be Lucifer, son of the dawn. But the correct pronunciation is Hillel ben Shachar, son of the dawn. Lucifer, light bearer, how you have fallen from heaven. Now read on, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. I want you to understand that what Isaiah prophesied was going to happen, John saw happen in Revelation chapter 8, verse 10, I believe. And, and Jesus refers to it happening, which is fascinating. If you want to turn, you can, or, or just listen, but Jesus sent out 70 of his disciples. Sent them out on a mission, sent them out in pairs, basically to clean house. It was brilliant on his part. There was a lot of demonic activity, partially because Satan knew that Jesus was in the world. Lots of demonic activity at that time, and Jesus needed to do some house cleaning so that hearts would be prepared and open, so the air would be cleared for people to hear the Word of God. 
So he sends out the 70, and they're going town to town ahead of Jesus to pray, to cast out demons. They're having great success with this. And then they come back to Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. It says, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, listen, he said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I was watching this happen. Isaiah prophesied how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, O son of the dawn. John would later write that this star, this wormwood causing bitterness would fall from heaven. Keep all that in mind, but Jesus says, I, I, I saw Satan falling like lightning, which means fast. It must have been a hard fall. Why did Satan fall so hard? Something practical to consider. We all know, we can surmise, Satan fell because of pride. He fell because of arrogance, because of self-exaltation. And, and rightly so, Satan had a powerful ministry in heaven. A guardian cherub. He was, he was awesome. And, and his ministry there was, was significant. And that is always a danger. When what you're doing for the Lord is powerful. When the position that you have before God is significant. Or when you just think it is. <laughs> when our ministry becomes so important to ourselves that we start to exalt or become prideful in it. Be careful if you think you stand lest you fall, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. But notice what Jesus does. Satan fell because he exalted himself, fell because of pride. Jesus, in talking to the 70, said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. That's powerful ministry. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. The point is this, in all our service and all our ministry, don't ever forget, we're bond servants of Jesus Christ. We are humble servants. And the true joy, the true blessing is not in the power of the ministry or the accomplishment of the ministry. It's that we belong to Him. That's it. And when my focus is in my belonging, that my name is recorded in heaven, I belong to Jesus. Whatever I do, you know, I do for Him. And whatever the results, it's whatever He wants. We leave the results in His hands. We leave the fruit of a conversation with someone about Jesus. We leave the fruit in the hands of the Spirit. If we see the result, wonderful. If we don't, wonderful. Because you know what makes no difference? My name is still recorded. No matter what I've done or accomplished today or this week, my name's recorded. That's why I want to do and accomplish for Him is because my name is already recorded. And that's my hope and that's my joy. Micah the prophet said in Micah 6 verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice. To love kindness. 
and to walk humbly with your God. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's how Jesus lived. See, that's the difference between the son of the morning Lucifer and the true morning star, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the morning star. And no one walked with more humility than Jesus. By the way, no one walked with more power either. There's a key to that we we were talking about just this morning. The more the humility, the more power God can pour out in and through you. But the more the pride, the more the power's got to go away. You want to have a powerful ministry in the world? Walk humbly with your God. You want to be used of Him to touch other people? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He'll, He'll lift you up. He'll exalt you at the proper time. Jesus did that. Who else but Jesus lived in such a way that people saw His good works? Do you remember this? Through the Gospels? That He would do miracles. He'd have days of healing. And the people praised the God of Israel. It says that over and over in the Gospels. The praise always went right over Jesus' head. And straight to the Father. Though you and I now reading it know, wow, the Father was in the Son and the Son was in the Father. God was with us, Emmanuel. And yet He didn't claim the glory but allowed it to go to God. The perfect example, the true morning star. Peter called him that the first time. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We have the prophetic word more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Jesus. And Jesus promised in Revelation 2.26, He who overcomes, I will give him the morning star. Revelation 22.16 I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. But note this, one more thing here in Luke chapter 10. Note how Jesus says what He does in verse 18. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I was watching Satan fall. It's an interesting translation. So is Jesus saying He saw Satan fall and that was it? Because of their ministry? (laughs) It's in the imperfect tense in the Greek. I was watching Satan fall. The implication in Jesus' words is it was ongoing. It was immediate and ongoing. That is, I saw him fall. And he tried to go back up and accuse some more and I saw him fall again. And he tried to go back up and accuse some more and I saw him fall again. Like Satan's trying to get up there to do what he wants to do most and that's accuse the brethren. Revelation 12 tells us that. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it does. He wants to be there accusing, and Jesus says, I kept seeing him fall. That's the implication here. Not just, I saw one long fall, but over and over. I, I, this is an ongoing thing. This is what Satan does. He keeps getting knocked down. He keeps trying to exalt himself, and he keeps getting knocked down. All of his minions, the demons, are getting cast out right and left as the 70 are going around to the villages. <laughs> and Satan's got to come down and deal with business. He gets that all settled and he goes back up to accuse some more. More demons get cast out. So he's got to, so it's this up and down thing where Satan's just fallen all over himself. And it points out a shocking realization that you Bible students know. And I think know full well. Again, Isaiah prophesied Satan's fall from heaven, but that fall from heaven did not revoke Satan's access to heaven. He still has access to this day. 
He can still come before God to this day, go up into the heavens and make His case or His accusations to this day. Jesus described that. Continual going up and falling down because the devil held on to his passport. Yes, he was booted from heaven. Satan and a third of his angels. Kicked out of heaven. But he can still come before God. How do you know that? Job chapter 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Sons of God, there's the Bene Elohim. It's a phrase for angels. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. That's my best Satan voice. (laughs) And then he's back again in Job chapter 2. Right back up before the Lord. Job chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. Same conversation happens. Where have you come from? I was down on the earth. He's right back before the Lord. He's in the presence of God. Satan was kicked out of heaven, lost his position, his authority, his influence, but he still comes before God to this very day. So Revelation 12.10 does tell us he accuses the brethren before our God day and night. He's doing it with your name and mine. Just know there, there is one. There's a reason why John says that Jesus is our advocate. We have a defense attorney in heaven covering for us constantly because there's a prosecuting attorney who's trying to get us taken down. Did you see what he did? Did you see what she was up to? Oh God, how can you possibly give grace for that? And Jesus says, oh no, he's mine. And she belongs to me. Yeah, he's born again. Covering interceding while Satan is accusing over and over and over. But a moment a moment is coming quickly when Satan's heavenly passport is going to be revoked. His visa denied. He will not be able to come before God again. We read about this. Revelation chapter 12. Look over there. Revelation 12 verse 10. This is a quick preview of coming attractions. But Revelation chapter ten or chapter twelve, sorry, verse ten, which says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. In verse 12, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and to the sea. Note that woe. Why is it saying woe? I think it's the first woe. See, quickly, Revelation chapter 12 is part of the next parenthetical section. I told you that there are a couple in the book where we pause and where John shares something that overlays what we've already studied. So Revelation 12 is going to overlay and give us picture, understanding, in fact, Revelation 11 and 12 of of the first half of the tribulation leading up to the midpoint. And part of Revelation 12 deals with the midpoint of the tribulation. I believe when they say, Rejoice, O heavens and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath knowing that he only has a short time. Satan gets the final boot. That's it. And he is earthbound or below But he cannot go up and accuse anymore. That's midpoint of the tribulation time. That's halfway through. How do you know that? Because I know how long he's thrown down to the earth for. 
How long? Revelation 12.14 says a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. It's the last three and a half years that Satan is finally booted out of heaven and spends all his time on planet Earth just trying to wreak havoc right and left. And that's interesting because that helps us get some time frame for Revelation chapter 9. So if you look back there, understand again, Revelation chapter 12 tells us Satan is finally thrown down for a time, times, and half a time. That is three and a half years, as we've seen. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen. So by Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, it's already happened. This star has fallen. And then you back up to Revelation chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, the great star came falling from heaven. And I don't think that that's coincidental. I think John is indicating something that has happened in the spirit realm. This star which had fallen is in fact the great star Wormwood, Lucifer, the shining bitter one, and he is now confined to earth and below, and he is handed a key. Revelation 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. To abuso fratos, not not fettuccine Alfredo, abuso fratos. Abuso fratos simply means the bottomless pit or the abyss. The Greek abuso, we translate abyss. It is a hellish detention center. It is not hell. It's like hell or perhaps a detention in hell, it could be. But it's not hell itself. It's a specific place of incarceration where the worst of the worst demons are absolutely in lockdown. Which is why he's given a key. A key to the abyss. A key to that place of demonic lockdown. Now, why would I think the worst of the worst demons are in this abyss, this abuso? Let me give you one indication. Remember the Bay of Pigs? And I'm not talking about Cuba. I'm talking about the Galilee, when, when Jesus and the boys crossed the Galilee on the boat, they came to the region of the, of the Gerasenes. And you remember the story, what happened? They met a demon-possessed man there. The man was possessed by so many demons, they referred to themselves as legion. A legion of soldiers is 12,000. 12,000 demons in one guy? Well, there were a lot. They may have been a little puffed up calling themselves legion, trying to be bigger than they were, but there were a lot in this guy, and he's rattling his chains, and he's running nakedly out of the tombs and the catacombs, and he comes rushing up. Can you even imagine the scene? You're one of the disciples, and you crawl out of the boat behind Jesus, and you're right back in the boat. You're halfway across the sea before Jesus says, Get back over here. This guy's nuts. The people are afraid of him. He's, He's... gashed himself, he's bleeding, he's got chains hanging off himself, and he says, who are you? Leave me alone, Jesus. And they're like, you know, the guy knows Jesus. And he comes up, and Jesus begins to have conversation. Jesus says, what's your name? Legion, for we're many. What's remarkable to me in the story, and you can read it yourself, that's all I'll tell of it tonight, but in Luke 8.31, listen. This legion of usurping demonic soldiers were imploring Jesus not to command them to go away into the abyss. Whatever you do, Jesus, 
Don't send us, please. Don't send us into the abyss. The abyss is so terrifying that a horde of demons beg not to be sent there. Don't do this to us. They pleaded with Jesus instead to make them deviled ham, and He did. (laughs) Send us into the pigs over there. They became hot bacon dressings, you know, like that. (laughs) Hey, it's better than the abuso. Send us to the pigs. And they all drown. But now, now, the devil has the key to the abuso. Verse 2. And he opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit. Note that, I'll come back to it, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. Power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And there's a lot right there, but this is the result of the blowing of the fifth trumpet, a stinging locust swarm. Straight up out of the pit. From the abuso. And these are weird locusts. As we'll see even more, but first of all, they go after humans rather than vegetation. Usually locust swarms are going for the grass and they're going for the trees and they're going for any of the plant life. That's what they're going to feed on. But these locusts are barred from plant life, which is unique. Now, by the way, some of you, if you're paying close attention, may have noticed that they were told not to hurt the grass. And if you look back to the first trumpet sound, you know that all the green grass was burned up. What happened? Did it grow back? No, no. There's the green grass, and then there's the grass. Okay, The green grass was all burned up. Apparently, not all the grass was, and I'm not talking about cannabis. The grass here... That he's talking about, this word can also be used of hay, of crops. So that same word, but it's, it's categorized in the first sense by the green grass. So we understand, okay, that's just the green grass of the ground, and that was all burned up. But here with the fifth trumpet, there's still grass, there's still wheat fields and, and hay fields, there's still vegetation, and these locusts cannot eat this vegetation. So they're going after people. And they're stinging like scorpions sting. And what about this seal of protection? Note that only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, and some suppose that this is a special seal for all believers. Anyone who missed the rapture of the church but comes to faith in Jesus during the tribulation, and we know there are countless multitudes who will, they'll get a special seal. And I saw this in, boy a number of legitimate conservative commentaries. And it sounds really nice that everyone who follows Jesus or believes in Jesus at that time will get a special seal of God that protects them. But you know what? The only context we have for sealed people is the 144,000. So again, this is just one man's opinion. But the 144,000, 12,000 from every one of the 12 tribes of Israel, 144,000 Jewish evangelists of chapter 7 that we already studied, they're sealed, they're protected. In my opinion, everyone else, everyone else has to deal with these locusts. Whether you believe or not. 
which again I say you do not want to be in the tribulation. You do not want to miss the rapture of the church. Which you can be assured of right now, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will go when He calls. You don't even have to believe in the rapture, which I think is wonderful, because there's going to be a lot of people completely freaked out. What's going on here? You know, And, and we're all saying, this is a rapture, dude, chill. <laughs> we knew, pre-tribber, you know. <laughs> I think everybody's going to be prey to these locusts and these scorpion stings. Everyone on the planet. And like I said before we started, this is going to happen. This, this is going to happen. As wild as it seems, this is coming on earth. By the way, note also I said, he opened the bottomless pit. If you look back at verse 2, and smoke went up out of the pit. What's going on there? I'm going to suggest to you that the smoke of the furnace has a soulish moral impact as much as it has a physical mental impact. What do you mean? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. This may be, maybe, and I know I've already suggested like three things that I'm just kind of surmising, so you've got to work this out and think it through. But this may be the point that the deluding influence is unleashed. With these locusts, with this smoke-filled skies and smoke gets in your eyes and you're not thinking straight. And part of the reason I believe that is not just the smoke, but it's what Paul said, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. We're at a point now in the tribulation where people aren't getting saved. Where people no longer love the truth. Boy, is this world ready for that. I mentioned last week the bill in New York State about the the, the abortion bill, where abortions could happen right up to the point of giving birth. Did you see that there was another lawmaker, and I forget what state it was even in, but who was standing before a judge? Did you guys see this? In Virginia. The bill introduced that would allow abortion when a baby is in the birth canal. And a judge was pressing this lawmaker on this and saying, look, I, I, just, I want to hear it from you. <laughs> he says, she's dilated. And you're saying at that point that abortion is okay. And, and this lawmaker him hot around and finally she said, yes. They did not receive a love of the truth. Cheryl and I were talking about this with a couple of our kids last night. And Cheryl made the point, when Roe v. Wade came down in the 70s, we didn't know what we know right now. And I'm not even okaying it then. But we didn't know what we know, what we have seen. We didn't have ultrasound technology that is as amazing as it is now. We didn't know. They did not receive a love of the truth so as to be saved. We're at a point here, when we get to chapter 9 in the book of Revelation, where people are so hardened, so rebellious, here comes the delusion. See, that's how God does it. It's how He did it with Pharaoh. Remember? Five times Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Israelites and against God. Five times he did. And then, the next five times, God hardened his heart. So if anyone ever says to you, well, it's not fair that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. All God did was support Pharaoh's choice. 
All God did was say, you've hardened your heart these five times, so I'm going to help you the next five. Just do what you're going to do anyway. Because God, unlike you, unlike me, He has the ability to look into a human heart and He knows when it is hardened beyond repair. When there is no hope. I called it before the point of no repentance. Because there is a place when a human heart... And I don't know when it is. You don't know either. In fact, don't start. Don't look at people in your life and go, well, he's just too hardened. You don't know that. Sometimes the hardest people are right on the verge of having their heart cracked wide open and receiving Jesus. But God knows. He sees clearly right into the heart and knows when a person will not repent. That's the state of the world. And my point in talking about the news that just came out today is this world is rushing to that point. Right now in our society, where evil is good and good is evil, the preparation, the stage is being laid for this very time when people will be deluded because they don't want the truth anyway. Well, verse 5. And they, back to these locusts, were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. Let me just say, those who try to stretch five months into maybe it's five years. That makes no sense. There's no context for that. It's just five months. And I know that because it's repeated. So there are two witnesses. There are two verses right here in chapter 9 that say, five months, five months. How long is this locust swarm going to hit? Five months. And so they torment for five months and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, verse 6, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Biblically speaking, locusts signify judgment. God has used locust swarms in the past in biblical history. And we learn this actually from the book of Joel. Why don't we turn back to Joel for a moment. The prophet Joel in your Bibles. Among the minor prophets. Turn back to Joel chapter 1. I'll remind you while you're turning there, Joel is a suitcase nuke. Three chapters. It's a very short prophecy, but it is potent and it primarily deals with the coming day of the Lord. So Joel is a parallel to the tribulation. What we study in Revelation 6 through 19, and especially Revelation 9, as you will see, is paralleled in the prophecies of the prophet Joel. So Joel chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll start reading. If you're not there, just keep getting there. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Note that, gnawing, swarming, creeping, stripping locusts. And in verse 5 he says, Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth, note this, are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. 
It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. My vine, my fig tree, those resemble, those are explanatory of Israel. The vine and the fig tree both are used to describe Israel in the Hebrew prophets. And they have been stripped. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Joel is a triple threat prophecy. Three aspects of it to understand. And even this opening of the prophecy, one is historic. That an actual locust swarm came upon Israel in the days of Joel. This would be about 800, 850 years before Jesus. And this locust swarm came upon the land and stripped it bare. This was also in the days of a very wicked woman, a queen named Athaliah, who wiped out all of the sons who were in line for the throne. The only one she didn't get to was a kid named Joash, who got hidden away and would become the next king. But it was an evil time in Israel's history, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so historically, there was a, God sent a locust swarm as judgment. It's also symbolic. Because while this is written about 850 years before Christ, 722 years before Jesus, the Assyrian army came upon northern Israel like a locust swarm and wiped them out. So what is read in Joel as he's talking about this nation coming on, there was a nation of locusts. And then there was a nation of Assyrians who, like locusts, wiped out Israel in 722 B.C. It never came back. And then the book of Joel is prophetic, as I said, of the day of the Lord. If you're looking at Joel still, look at verse 4 one more time. It mentions gnawing, swarming, creeping, stripping, locusts. And those who know anything about these bugs, this is the life cycle of a locust. It's described in verse 4. It's what they do. It's how they mature from the larval state all the way up to a fully grown adult with wings and all. It moves through this this pattern here of gnawing and then swarming and then creeping and then stripping. That's what locusts do. Interesting. March through October of 1915 saw the greatest, the most massive locust swarm in modern history on the land of Israel. There is writing in the New York Times of that time that describes it. It says that over all of the Ottoman-controlled land of Israel, which at that time they were calling Palestine, incorrectly, but that's what it was called for many centuries. So over Palestine, Ottoman-controlled Palestine and Ottoman Syria, this locust swarm came and wiped out the land. Witnesses, this is from the New York Times, 1915, witnesses described clouds of locusts so thick they blocked the sun. Female locusts immediately began laying eggs a hundred at a time. In one square yard, it equaled 65 to 75,000 locust eggs. In a few weeks, these eggs hatched and looked like large ants. They couldn't fly, but they could creep and they could strip, covering 400 to 600 feet daily. And after two stages of molting, they became adults with wings and the cycle of wreckage continued. Now the article goes on and on describing this and, and how, they, how they stopped them. How they finally ended this locust swarm, but it was devastating. And I'll tell you what, in, back in Revelation chapter 9, you can go back there for now. If these were just locusts, it would be bad enough. But remember where they come from. Out of the abyss. 
released either by a horrific demon or, I believe, as I've said, by Satan himself. They're released from the abyss, out they come, and here's the description of them in verse 7. The appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. Interesting that the Italian word for grasshopper is cavaletta, which means little horse. That grasshoppers or, or locusts have that look anyway, like little horses. These are twisted little horses because, listen, they look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women. And their teeth, what did Joel say? Were like the teeth of a lion. Same here. Teeth like the teeth of a lion. Women's hair. Men's faces. Little horsey bodies. Guys, these things were grotesque. They will be horrifying to look at. Nightmarish. I remember the show Outer Limits. Did any of you ever watch The Outer Limits? Maybe when you were kids. That show terrified me. That was like the horror version of Twilight Zone. you know. And there was one where this guy gets stranded on Mars. And I'll never forget it because it gave me nightmares for years. And out of this, this guy gets stranded. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere... And there was this horrible sound. I still remember the sound. The sound was like that. The guy looks down, and here comes this large ant, probably about as big as a man's hand, but it had a man's face on it. Crawling along. Scared me. I'm going to have a nightmare tonight, Cheryl. Scared me to death as a kid. These are worse. These are extreme demon locusts. They're coming out of the pit. They are incarcerated tonight. They're incarcerated right now because they are so twisted and so evil. Verse 9 says they had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. So there again, five months. Verse 11 sheds a little more light on them, at least on their nature. Verse 11 says, They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. And his name in the Hebrew is Abaddon. And he was one. He was Abaddon. A bad, a bad one. And in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. So they've got a king over them. And that's interesting. Applying scripture to this, Proverbs 30, verse 27 tells us locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. Locust swarms, they, they function in ranks, and they function by division, and they go out all together in great clouds. But these locusts, though no locust, no normal locust has a king, these do. And his name is Destroyer. Abaddon or Apollyon, it both translates Destroyer. I, I read that, it's funny, I, I was thinking yesterday... I confess to you, please forgive me of this. In junior high, Pastor Rick was a big KISS fan. Yes, I was. They had an album that came out. I had no idea at the time. The album was called Destroyer. And on the front of the cover, it's got the four guys in their makeup and their strange little costumes and they're and they're but they're standing on these rocks and they're like they're like charging ahead and it's just KISS, Destroyer. I thought it was so cool. I thought all of Kiss's stuff was cool. Spitting blood, 
breathing fire. Gene Simmons, the demon. You know, Ace Frehley, the spaceman. Peter Chris, the drummer. See, I told you, I liked Kiss. I know all about him. I know far too much. You know what? Side note. Those years when I was heavily into Kiss were some of the darkest of my life. As ironic or strange or silly as that may even sound, a junior high kid having dark... Those couple of years... When I was in junior high, I was more tempted to sin and I did more dark things and was more interested in darkness than at any time before or after. And it didn't go away until I got rid of Kiss. There is an impact. Moms and dads, there is an impact, teenagers, on what we listen to and what we take in and what we soak ourselves in. There is an impact. You try and say there's not. There is. There, there was on me. Anyway, destroyer. These are all, they're all under this king, this king whose name is Destroyer. These demon locusts from the Abuso with a horrible demon king. Destroyer. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Remember this, never forget. Satan doesn't want to do anything in your life but steal, kill, or destroy. That's all he's interested in. Satan never pauses and says, Ah, it's cool, have a nice day. Satan never says, Ah, we'll we'll ease up on this guy. Everything he does, even if it seems good, Everything he does is to steal, kill, and destroy. He's a liar and the father of lies. So he's going to make people think, well, this looks like a good idea. Let's legalize cannabis. I think that's a great idea. I mean, that's another conversation for another time. The destroyer, that's what he does. He destroys. That's all he's interested in doing. Now, is Satan the destroyer? I don't think so. Could be. It's possible that Abaddon, that Apollyon is referring to Satan as the destroyer. That's a possibility. The only thing that gives me pause is that this is the angel of the abyss, and Satan isn't in the abyss. Satan's roaming the earth. So all these demons are in the abyss, and they have a king over them, the angel of the abyss, as the scriptures tell us. So my assumption is there's a king over the demon locusts in the abyss and when they are let out he is let out and he then refers to Satan there is structure in the spirit realm they do go out in rank so this is either the devil or it is a bad one in league with the devil and as I said earlier Revelation 12 tells us that a third of all the angels became Satan's hellish henchmen But these, these in the abyss, I think we've heard about them before. I think they've been described in other places. They are extreme demons that are so bad, they have to be under lock and key. That's got to be pretty bad. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, which means the deepest abyss, I think it's the same. Tartarus is the abyss. And committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Peter refers to fallen angels that are so wicked, so evil, God chained them up, locked them up in the abyss. 
Jude, verse 6 says, angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. They are right now in incarceration. Evil, evil angels that are so wicked, so bad, they can't even be among demons on the earth. That's bad. That's wicked. What did they do to get there? Oh, if we only had time. But I would refer you back to Genesis chapter 6 and an interesting story regarding a, a group called the Nephilim. And if you will be patient and God allows us the time, we'll finish Revelation, we'll go back to Genesis, we'll have that conversation. But these are horrifying evil locust demons. What would happen if the worst rapists and murderers and violent offenders in our nation were suddenly set free? Just free to do whatever they wanted. Free to roam. Would we want that? Would we want to just spring them out of jail with, with no worries about where they were going or what they were doing? That's what's happening here. The worst of the worst demons suddenly set free, running wild on the planet. And it's so bad, look back at verse 6. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Massive suicide. Or at least suicidal attempts, because death flees. They're going to try to take their own lives. They're going to wish they could die. It's so bad, they don't die. As this is going on and on over five months. And as the punishing warnings of these trumpet judgments increase, tragically, so does the hardness of heart. The world gets more and more hardened against God. These are the bitterly unrepentant. Because you know what men are seeking at this time? They're seeking death. They're not seeking God. They're not turning back to the Lord. All they want is death when all they need is God. See, that's how the enemy gets us. That's how he lies to us. We need the Lord. But I want you to remember this, that these trumpet judgments, the seven trumpets, they are blown as judgment, but also as what? Warning. Warning. It's also warning. It's still a season where God is pleading. He is trying to bring about repentance. And as we studied and read on Sunday, 2 Corinthians 7.10, the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And that's what mankind will seek at this time of the tribulation. They will be seeking death. And it will come. Verse 12. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Metatautus. So we're moving forward. After these things, we're on to the next thing. Verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release! Now, hold on a second. (laughs) I heard a voice, he says. The voice is coming from the golden altar of incense. The four horns of the golden altar. A voice? Perhaps, I suggest, it's the voice of our great high priest. It may be the voice of Jesus right here. 
who is commanding. If not him, it's it's an angel, perhaps the angel who who took the big censer in chapter eight with the prayers of the saints and the incense, and he took the altar fire and cast it on the earth. It could be either way. I don't know for sure. But I know this. The heavenly altar of incense is described with four horns just like the golden altar was described for the tabernacle and then the temple. That's important because as we talked about, every one of these pieces of furniture that were created and and that were built and put into the tabernacle and later the temple are all shadowy earthly representations of the real thing. John sees the real thing. I saw, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar. Now, go back there. Think with me just for a moment. The golden altar. What's the point of the altar? The golden altar. Prayer. Prayer, right. And you're right. The bronze altar out in the courtyard, that's sacrifice. Golden altar, prayer, intercession. But what is that prayerful intercession that's going on? Listen, get this. It's prayer of repentance. Prayers of repentance primarily being prayed there at the golden altar when the priest went in to offer up prayers with the incense, praying for the people, praying to turn the hearts of the people back to their God. Something happened. Understand here, this place of intercession and repentance. Keep that in mind. But this mention right here of the four horns of the golden altar is the last time in the Bible that the golden altar is mentioned. Just as significant as is the first mention of something in the Scriptures, the last mention you need to stop and take a look at. Because it is significant, and I believe this is right here. Why? Every year, the beginning with Yom Teruah, Day of Trumpets, Feast of Trumpets, you know, the trumpet would be blown... And it started something. Every year, still to this day in Israel, it begins what observant Jews refer to as the awesome days. From Yom Teruah, blowing of the trumpet, to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The awesome days take place. Now, put that in interesting context. The blowing of the trumpet introduces the awesome days leading up to the Day of Atonement. And then after that, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. In the same way, the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ will rise, the rapture of the church. What happens after that? Awesome days of tribulation. Atonement that takes place as earth itself is going to be bathed in blood. And then after that, as Jesus comes back, He establishes the kingdom and the Feast of Tabernacles is a feast of the millennial kingdom. So it, it lines up here beautifully, but, but stay with me on this. So here's the golden altar. What, what's, what's that got to do with this? The ten days of repentance and reflection, the awesome days take place. Right up to Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement. On Yom Kippur, the high priest goes in all by himself, passes through the holy place into the holy of holies. And he sprinkles blood on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for all the sins of the people of Israel. Are you with me on that? But then he comes out. And this is the order of things. First, the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. Then he comes out into the holy place. And the next thing he does is he sprinkles blood on the horns, the four horns of the altar of incense. Offering up final prayers for the people. And that completes 
the awesome days. At least in Jewish tradition and in the way it's laid out. What are you saying? I'm saying the implication is the golden horns of the altar is mentioned here. The voice says, release. That just like that gets to the point where all repentance is done, I think that's the point we're at right here. That in Revelation chapter 9, verse 13, as the voice sounds from the golden altar, the implication is repentance is over. Now, I don't see any hint that people are repenting after this as we study through the rest of Revelation. You'll see over and over. In fact, you'll see tonight before we're done. No hint that people want to repent. But I would couple with that that this may very well be the moment where God says, and repentance is through. Why would God do that? Because He knows repentance won't come. So here at the golden altar, the voice rings out, repentance is over. The previous five months have been painful. And the previous three and a half years before that have not been a cakewalk. This has been the most horrendous time in the history of the world up to this point. But understand that even during the previous five months while it was painful, you know what wasn't happening? People weren't dying. So even for all the pain... There was still mercy because death wasn't occurring. Even in the the horror of these demon locusts, mercy is still available. There's still the offer. There's still the hope that you could repent. That these five months weren't to prolong the agony of the pain. No, it was to prolong opportunity. That someone might still perhaps at that time repent, but now the voice sounds from the altar saying, verse 14, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released. Why? So that they would kill a third of mankind. Sixth trumpet is blown. The voice sounds from the golden altar of incense and killing angels and demon horsemen are released. These four angels, these are not good angels. Some have tried to say, well, maybe they're the same angels as the four that we saw holding back judgment in Revelation chapter 7. No, these angels are not holding back judgment. They are committing judgment. They are meeting out judgment. And furthermore, these angels are currently, as we study tonight, these four angels are bound. So these are imprisoned. They're bound at the river Euphrates. Interesting. You know, it's it's almost conceivable that angels or, or demons would be bound in the abyss, you know, the spiritual... These guys are bound at the Euphrates on earth. Isn't that weird? That there's actually a place on the planet where there are angelic beings, dangerous, wicked, evil, angelic beings that are bound? But that's exactly what we see here. Four angels, four killing angels, bound at the Euphrates. And that's even more interesting to me, the Euphrates. Why the Euphrates? Well, it's one of four branches of the river that flowed from Eden. Remember that? Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 15 talk about the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. And we still have a river flowing then today, a couple of rivers that we know originated from the Garden of Eden. 
the Euphrates. The Euphrates River, at this river, Nimrod, who rebelled against the Lord, a mighty hunter against the Lord, founded Babylon at the Euphrates River. The seat of all the idolatry of history. The Euphrates River divides a region that continues to seethe with violence and tribalism and territoriality, and yes, it continues to seethe with idolatry throughout the Middle East, either side of the Euphrates. On the positive, the Euphrates River to the east and the Great Nile on the west form the the boundaries of the land of promise. 300,000 square miles that were promised to Abraham for Israel. And you Bible students know at the height of Solomon's kingdom, they only held 30,000. 10% of the promise that was given. The Euphrates River, it is the true West Bank of the promised land. It's not the Jordan. It's the Euphrates. But for reasons that God only knows... These four angels are currently bound there, and they're bound, as as John writes, for a particular hour, day, month, and year. Meaning what? Meaning all four of these angels have this date on their iPhones. Are you saying that those who use iPhones are demonic? No. But they've got it on their calendar. Why? Because this is a God-scheduled event. This is in God's plan. These killing angels have no power or authority to determine when they break loose and do what they're about to do. They have a specific time that they know they're going to be loosed to do what they're going to do, and that is bring about death on the earth. And it is massive. In fact, up to this point, it is the most massive set of casualties that we've yet seen. Consider this. With the rapture of the church... Across the planet, there's going to be mass disappearance. Because praise God and thanks for His grace, there are massive numbers of people that are going to go in the rapture. Again, whether people believe in the rapture or not is beside the point. If you believe in Jesus, when He calls, you're going. So there's going to be this incredible disappearance that will, of course, freak out the world until they all explain that it's alien abduction. Oh, that's what happened. But the world will shrink in terms of the population of humanity. Perhaps, as I referred to, I think, in an earlier study, as many as 2 billion people just disappearing. And then, and then, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, remember this, during the seal judgments, by the fourth seal judgment, we realize that a fourth of all the people on the planet are dead. So that's after the rapture. So the rapture happens and already there's a massive disappearance. And then another fourth of all people on earth are completely gone. Revelation chapter 6 verse 8. Now another third of the three-fourths that were left after that are now slain. What I'm saying is at this point in the tribulation, fully half of the world's population after the rapture half of those left behind are now dead. It's almost too big a number even to wrap our brains around. But I take you back to 9-11 when 3,000 people were killed in that terrorist attack and the impact it had on our entire country. And that was just, forgive me for saying it this way, that was just 3,000. This is half the world's population now dead. 
through the tribulation. When we talk about, and please remember this in the future, Lord willing, as we continue to study the Scriptures, when we even mention the word tribulation, this is devastating. This is not a joke. This is not some theology. Half the world, gone, wiped out. Now, some people will say, and this is the worst so far, because at this point, two billion is what we're talking about. At the hands of these four marauding angels. And some would say, well, how can just four demons kill two billion people? Well, A, they could. But B, they don't do it alone. Verse 16. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, John says. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and hyacinth, which is blue, and brimstone. So really red, blue, yellow, these are all fiery colors. Their, their breastplates are on fire. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire, which is red, and smoke, which is the color of hyacinth and brimstone. And a third of mankind was killed by these plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths, for the power of the horses is in their mouths, and and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. You see how demonic this has all of a sudden gotten? How wild is this picture? of what's actually going to come on the planet. Now, now, first of all, people throw out all kinds of questions when we get to this point in Revelation. One of them is they say, 200 million? Come on. Come on. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million? Verse 16? There weren't even 200 million on the planet in the first century. John's rounding up. <laughs> you know, that's what he's doing. He's just trying to come up with a, a big number to try and say there were a whole lot. Because they say, you know, John couldn't really have understood then, so he's, he's having to just kind of throw out a big number. You know what? John's done that before. Revelation chapter 7, he said there were multiplied millions who were saved out of the tribulation, a number that no one could count. So John knows how to give a vague number. He's not given a vague number here. When he says 200 million, the number is absolutely specific. In the Greek, it's dismuriadis muriadon. Which means 200,000,000. Just in case anyone might miss it, add it up, 200,000,000, which is why the translation says 200 million. Because 200,000,000 is 200 million. But again, people hear this and they go, okay, but this is crazy. Where could a 200 million horseman army come from? And some point to this. This is coming from across the Euphrates. This is coming from the east. This is coming from regions, say, China. And perhaps, well, I'll give you this statistic. The CIA fact book in 2010 stated that China, east of the Euphrates, reported 314 million men ages 16 to 49 who are fit for military service. Not 200 million, 314 million in China right now, over the age of 16, ready to fight. Oh wait, that was in 2010. 
The CIA factbook was saying, and that number of militarized individuals in China is growing at a rate of 90 million a year. And that doesn't include, in 2010, another 298 million women who could serve. So, yeah, planet Earth now sees a population base that could support and send out a 200 million man army or 200 million horsemen. And furthermore, John didn't just see a big number of cavalry and make it up. John says at the end of verse 16, I heard the number of them. So he's not saying, I saw a big number, let's go with 200 million. He's saying, I heard it. John was told, this is how big this army is. So he writes down 200 million. The number is specific. So what's going on here with these horses with lion heads breathing fire and these, these horsemen with, with fiery breastplates? This, this is kind of crazy. What, what's really happening? Hal Lindsey was among the first to point this out in 1970, the late great planet Earth. If you've ever read the book, it's, it's a fascinating read. And I actually, I actually appreciate Hal Lindsey. There are a lot of things that he has said over the years that have opened people's eyes and waked people up. But he was the first to really start making a comparison of these horsemen and horses to John's description maybe of what was really tanks, Apache helicopters, and, and what Lindsay came along and said was, maybe John is describing things the only way he knows how. If you had never seen an Apache helicopter come riding in, firing missiles, how would you describe it if you were John? Well, maybe you would say it was like a horse with a lion's head breathing fire. I don't know what that is. I've never seen an Apache helicopter. I've never seen a tank blast someone. I, how do you describe that? Uh, a rolling army of horses? I don't know. What would you say... John, after all, didn't have the vocab, right? He, he didn't have words for tanks and artillery and missile launchers. So he said, horsemen with lion-headed, fire-breathing. Here's the thing. John doesn't even use the military language of the day to describe the machinery of warfare, and he could have. He could have said, if it was tanks that he saw, he could have said, I saw massive chariots riding in. You know, if it was flying helicopters, he could have used language. He could have said flying chariots. He could have said graven catapults were firing off, flaming spears and arrows. He could have used military lingo. He didn't. His description here is animated and dynamic. It's almost biological. He's describing beings that are moving and riding in. And I'm just telling you this, here's a change in my own theology from the last time I taught Revelation. I no longer believe this is a 200 million man army. There will be one. There's one that's going to come during the bold judgments. In fact, the Bible's clear about that. There's going to be a massive Asian coalition of armies from the east. And they're going to wind their way across an evaporated Euphrates as they march to Armageddon to fight there. 
But that doesn't happen until the bowl judgments. That is yet to occur. That's Revelation 16, verse 12. I'll just read it to you. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And Daniel says, Antichrist is disturbed by word that the kings of the east are coming. Daniel chapter 11, look it up. So we know that that's an event that's going to happen. But at this point, listen, at this point in the trumpet judgments, <laughs> Pastor Rick Simpleton believes it means what he says. And, and he says what he saw. Which is what? A massive cavalry of demonic riders on devilish steeds, 200 million strong, led by four angels on a massive killing spree. This is wholly demonic. This is supernatural. And the devastation that is caused by this trumpet sound and by these beings coming on the earth is almost incomprehensible. As I said, by this time, half the planet is killed. And verse 20 tells us, shockingly, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. They did not repent of the works of their hands. So as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They're worshiping demonic idols. Demonic beings come upon them, waylay half the earth and they keep worshiping demonic idols. This is how hard the heart becomes. This is where mankind will be at that point. By the way, you know what happens when you put your trust in things that can't see or hear or walk? You become blind and deaf and lame. Because we become like who or what we worship. And, and I know most of you would say, well, I don't worship an idol. Gold or silver or brass or stone or wood. I don't worship an idol of wood. I won't be at the church for a few weeks because I'm building my house, but I don't worship an idol made of wood. No, I don't worship idols of brass as I'm shining my new car. We become like what we emulate, what we worship, what we exalt in our lives. And so much of what we consider to be so important has no eyesight, cannot hear, and can't move on its own. And when we emulate these things, we become this way. If we worship a stony-eyed statue, we lose insight and understanding. We bow down to a brazen image that has no ears. We cease to hear the call of the Spirit of God. We become like what we worship. Honor a golden fixture that cannot move and you will be stuck in a place of faithlessness, unable to move forward or backward. That's what happens with idolatry. But, but, Psalm 33 verse 1 says, Sing for joy in the Lord, you righteous ones, praise is becoming to the upright. It's one of my favorite single verses in the Psalms. Praise is becoming to the upright. What does that mean? It means the more you praise God, the better looking you're going to be. And I'm not talking about some physical manifestation. I mean, you just start to have the glow of the Lord. 
You'll worship Him. You praise Him. I was driving home tonight. I left the building kind of late today. It's Rachel's fault. And as I came out of the driveway and hooked a right, and I started down toward 20, and there was the ocean out before me, and the sun was setting, and it pierced, it pierced just straight through the clouds, and there was a straight beam. It was so beautiful of bright orange-yellow light that went straight down and was caught on the water and spread straight across the water toward Whidbey Island. I'm driving and I just went. I, I pull over. I go, oh, yeah. Yeah, Jesus. Wow, God, that's amazing. And, you know, it's funny. I, and I had a great day today, but, but I just it just lightened my mood even more. And I, I was filled with joy. And I remember tonight, we're going to talk about this, praise is becoming the upright. And for a moment, I was upright and I was beautiful, man. As I was just worshiping God. And it was, it was a great a great moment. Man, allow your heart to go there. Even if people think you're a little wacky or weird. If you feel like worshiping God, worship God. Praise the Lord because it is good for us. It's healthy for us. As we worship, not idols made of stone or wood or gold. As we worship the living God, we are becoming more like Jesus. We are becoming Christ-like. Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. We look like Him. We start to take after Jesus. And what's remarkable here is we read all this horror and what's coming on the earth. You know what? That's God's offer on the table right now. You can look like My Son. In fact, you can be My sons and My daughters. That's what I'm giving. That's why I'm, I'm proposing to you, the Lord would say to us, to all mankind. You can be with me. You can be like me. But the world is coming to a place when not even terrifying demonic hordes can crack the shell of a hard heart. Verse 21, and they did not repent. Watch this. Of their murders, of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. And actually, it was Rachel who caught my attention with this because we read that verse recently this weekend and she made a comment about... (laughs) You remember this? You go, they're still killing each other. And I went, you know what? She's right. In the midst of all of this supernatural terror that is taking place on the planet, not only are they not repenting, they're not turning to God, they're not turning from their evil. They are still killing each other. They are still idolatrous. They are still practicing Sorcery, witchcraft, the word sorcery there, we'll see again in Revelation, is pharmakia. Pharmakia? Drug abuse. So they're still worshiping, they're they're engaging in witchcraft and sorcery and, and drug abuse. They are still immoral, the word pornea. They're still practicing sexual immorality. They are still stealing from each other. Did you ever think we would get to the place in this world where people would actually be stealing identity? That, to me, is one of the weirdest, freakiest things about our culture. It's not that someone will just break into my house and steal my goods. It's not that someone will hack into my bank account and steal my money. It's that someone can actually steal my identity. And they're still doing it. This sin is still rampant through the tribulation. They did not repent. 
what is the greatest reason for a refusal to repent? We talked about it on Sunday. Let me remind you. Very simply, the refusal to repent is not a refusal to stop sinning. It is a refusal to turn to God from self. I don't want to do that. I want to do it my way. And the reality here is that the biggest idol in every one of our lives that we have to learn to give up is the idol that stares right back at us in the mirror. It's the idol of self. Because it's the self that is so hardened here that they're still idolatrous and murderous and practicing witchcraft and sexually immoral and and stealing. Which is why John said at the end of 1 John 5.21, and I mentioned this when we studied the letters of John, 1 John may be the last thing he wrote after Revelation. If it was, then the last thing he wrote in the last letter he wrote was, little children, guard yourselves from what? Idols. Idolatry. Turn from sin. Turn from other sources. That's all well and good, but we've got to learn how to turn from self and turn to Savior God. Which is why Jesus says, if you want to be born again, you've got to commit Me as your Lord. You've got to declare Me as your Lord and your Savior. You have to bow, bend the knee to Me, give Me Lordship. Because when I give Jesus Lordship, I have then finally turned from self. Now He's Lord. It's not, I'm just not just going to stop sinning. I'm going to stop ricking. <laughs> I'm going to stop selfing. I'm turning from me. And I'm turning to my Savior God. One last thing to show you tonight, and I promise, five minutes, we're done. But turn back to the book of Joel, and we'll end there. I wasn't sure if I was going to do this. I thought, well, if we go long, I won't do this. We've gone long, and I'm going to do it. Joel chapter 2. Just look at this. We've got to end on this note. I want you to listen closely, because all that we have talked about in Revelation chapter 9 tonight, I'm just going to read through something. Watch how it parallels. Joel chapter 2. You there? Verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Okay, the fifth, the sixth trumpet, the trumpets are being blown. Joel says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them and behind them. A flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. And nothing at all escapes them. Watch this. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains. Like a crackling of flame, a flame of fire, consuming the stubble. Like a mighty people arrayed for battle. Remember what John just described? Isn't that the same exact thing? 
Before them the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men and climb the wall like soldiers. They each march in line, nor do they deviate from their path. That's what locusts do. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The stars and moon grow dark. Or the sun and moon grow dark. And the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. For strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? And that's what we just read in Revelation chapter 9. But wait. Verse verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Note that. Don't miss this. I I end on this point. Return to Me, He says. Turn back to Me. Repent. I'm going to forgive. I'll be gracious. I'll be kind. And who knows, if you repent, maybe I'll even do this. Maybe I'll even leave a grain offering and a drink offering, watch this, for you to give Me. Okay, what do you mean, Lord? The greatest blessing that God gives to us is the blessing that allows us to give to God. When He blesses me in such a way that I can turn around and bless the Lord, that's the best of all possible blessing. And it comes when we repent. When we turn from self, we turn to the Lord He gives such a blessing that we can bless His name. Therefore, Peter said, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Father, when we understand repentance in these terms, I don't know why we would ever think that that's not a great word. Why we would ever in this world or in the church shy away from saying repent. When repentance from a biblical perspective means refreshing. When repentance restores us in relationship with you. When repentance brings blessing and forgiveness and grace. Lord, right here and now tonight, I repent again. I turn to you and from self. And we say, Lord Jesus, You are the great King. You are the morning star. You are the one we worship. You are the one we praise. Father, I pray that our lives would be lived out in repentance. As Les shared earlier today, that just the continual sanctification. Our spirit men, our spirit women are saved for all eternity, but our souls need a continual washing and cleansing and saving. And it comes as we repent. So we repent here tonight. 
and we turn away from what we've done in rebellion and we turn to You. We come offering our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.